0: Put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.
1: Boy, oh boy. We got a couple more hours together and you're listening to News Radio 930 WBEN. You can call or text questions. Most likely, you're going to text in this next segment, 716-803-0930. And I was watching video... Of the Alex Jones Kanye West interview from yesterday and man, I can't think of another example where a celebrity has gone through such a fast downward spiral and has basically ruined their reputation in such a quick way. You know the whole Will Smith slap, and you're like, Oh, why would you why would you give up so much goodwill that you've worked for your entire career for getting up on stage and slapping a comedian who tells a joke? What what sense does that make? This makes the slap look so tame, the way Kanye West is now glorifying Hitler and Nazism and all this stuff. But it made me wonder... Is this just like new media? Has this changed the media landscape where you see more extreme things being said and done in order to grab attention? It's changed so much over the years from what I can remember. And I wanted to discuss the media with someone who follows it, a journalist who covers tech and local news, also the media. He has a website called thedesk.net, which I like and I look at almost daily. He covers media journalism that way. Matthew Keyes joins us now. Welcome to WBEN. Hello. Hello
2: hi, good morning, or good afternoon over there, Uh, it's
1: good to be with you. Yeah, you're on the West Coast, so you're three hours behind, so it's noon for you. I'm cutting into your lunchtime, so I hope that's okay. And if I hear some crunching in the background, that's okay, too. Let's talk about this media landscape, by the way. Uh, One of the questions I asked you and I was just curious about is how long do you think before mainstream networks start to look more like Alex Jones? And I don't mean like super fringe, but more or less, they're more likely to bring on risky personalities in the hope that they act so bombastic that that's going to be the new normal they they want the shock and awe as opposed to the calculated and fun
2: you know i i think that we've we've been seeing this progression over the last you know decade or or maybe even two decades and um alex jones is certainly not the first person to tap into controversy and conspiracy excuse me and sort of the um unhinged to uh to try to grab viewers and and ratings and dollars and um you know it's it's somewhat ironic that uh while he has a significant audience you know i mean just look at look at the news that came out today it's it's clear that crazy and and chaos cannot be a sustainable business model alex jones filed for chapter 11 bankruptcy this morning um you know this was a byproduct of the lawsuit that um, some parents from uh, from Newton, Connecticut, filed against him over the Sandy Hook mass shooting, which he colored as a false flag you know, uh, and, and said that there were crisis actors that were hired. Um, that's par for the course for him as far as how that affects mainstream <clears throat> media, um, which w- most of the time when we're talking about mainstream media, the pundits are talking about television news. Right. And specifically cable news. And. Uh, If you look at at the progression of cable news from the mid-90s onward, it has gotten more crazy. It has gotten more chaotic. But what we're starting to see now, especially over the last six weeks, is that as the chaos starts to subside uh, on the political side and more of the chaos becomes distributed through new media platforms where there are no gatekeepers like Jones' show, like some of these startup social media platforms that we're starting to see embrace that kind of chaos, the business model in the traditional media world, and specifically the cable news media world, with, with one exception, um, has really fallen apart. You know, this week we had journalists laid off en masse from CNN. If you look at the journalists that were laid off at CNN, a lot of them are, are pundits and commentators and producers who were hired. Um, some of them were hired a while ago, but almost all of them had one common thread, and it's that they were hired – Um, to focus on politics. And now we don't have as much chaos in the White House. And that business model that was built up over the Trump administration of let's get more chaos on the air, because there was a lot of it to cover, has fallen apart.
1: Yeah. Okay. This is interesting. In mainstream media, I'm trying to draw a comparison to Twitter and what they're going through right now. So In a nutshell, people that have been following the whole Elon Musk thing, the idea is it's better to have as many voices as possible because that way you don't feel like you're compelled in a certain way, you're demonetized or canceled in a certain way. Elon Musk said, you know, we need to cancel the cancel culture. So that opens up more discussion, which I think they want on a platform like that. But it also brings controversy and it also, though, brings more people onto the platform, which is profitable. So in some ways, they look at that and they say, yeah, we can take advantage of this, which is kind of different from other mainstream outlets. And I'll I'll use NPR for an example. If I listen to an NPR station or NPR programming, for the most part, I have a certain expectation of what lane they're going to stay in when it comes to topics. And sometimes they'll have to put out like PR that says, you know, we decided not to talk about this because we feel it is in our listeners' best interest not to address certain things. So I'm almost thinking of two different sides here. One is open everything up, talk as much as you can, bring the controversy. The other is we need to protect our audience not bring in wild thoughts that we look at as bombastic. So that's why we're going to shy away from this sort of thing. I almost see mainstream media in some ways having to pick a side at some point and they got to figure out what lane they're going to be in. Or do you think that maybe all the lanes are going to open up at some point? We're going to see a mix of it all over the place.
2: Well, the answer to that question is you're seeing both sides of that equation play out now everywhere. Right. Mm. And, um, You know, there are some networks that do very, very well for themselves in sticking with their own line. You know, two that come to mind immediately, if we're looking at cable news, it would be the Fox News Channel and CNBC. You know, these are two networks that um, have traditionally carried the same type of programming since their inception, uh, and that model has worked very well for it. And when something doesn't work, um, they cut it off. Uh, you know, Shepard Smith's news program was, was really good. It was something that I watched on a regular basis, but it didn't quite fit the mold of what CNBC is. And then if you, and boy, whereas the rest of their programming does just fine, right? As mm-hmm. There's a piece out right now in The Atlantic that I was reading right before I took this call uh, that Brian Stelter, the former CNN anchor and New York Times reporter wrote up that said that, you know, the, uh, the demise of HLN, which was CNN's entertainment-focused history network, um, really spells the end of you know companion television viewership and that's not correct. Uh, if you look at the networks that like CNBC or Fox News that have stayed in their lane over the last two, three, four decades, <clears throat> you know CNBC on the latter end of that, um, they are doing just fine. Uh, Lachlan Murdoch, the CEO of Fox Corporation which owns Fox News Channel, has said repeatedly over several, earnings calls, you know, quarterly earnings calls, they're a publicly traded company, so they have to disclose their revenue to shareholders and the public. He has said they're, they're doing just fine. They're not seeing the same type of advertising headwinds. You know, they're not seeing the same loss in ad revenue that other media companies are, are seeing. And I think it's because, you know, for better or for worse, whether you agree with the programming on Fox News Channel, you know, it, the programming sometimes gives me heartburn you know, because I don't always agree with what I'm, I'm watching politically but I do monitor it because I think their business model is fascinating. And then if you look at CNN um, or even MSNBC, you know, everybody's adopting the Fox playbook because it's very successful. And partisan politics is a very successful business model to embrace if you're a media company, because it does work and Fox proved Mm -hmm. that it worked. Um, CNBC is trying to undo a lot of the partisan politics at the behest of some of their shareholders, including a big one now that they're part of Warner Brothers Discovery, um, their biggest one of their biggest shareholders, John Malone, came out and said, "Hey, uh, you know, this this partisan politics stuff is not good, and this opinion programming is not what CNN was intended to to you know to program, and maybe we should get back to our journalistic groups." And, that, and you're starting to see that happen now. So long term, it's really hard to predict what's going to happen with with cnn i think cnn will be fine they're a cornerstone cable news network but i do think it's going to be a shell of of the the brand that we've seen built up over the last 10 years or so meanwhile you're going to have these other news networks like fox like cnbc uh, even msnbc that have really picked the lane they've stayed in it and we're finding that that approach from a business perspective right um is the better approach now how that impacts politics and society—that's a different conversation to have. Clearly, some of the programming that are on these cable news channels, some of the people that are joining these social media platforms, um, are saying and doing things that are not constructive to to society. And in some cases, they're spouting information that is just flat out wrong. The fact that people still—you know—there are people that still believe that the Earth is flat is kind of mind-boggling to any reasonable, educated person. And yet, there is an audience for that type of misinformation. How do you build a business around that? I think Elon Musk is going to really struggle to answer that because while it's great to have a platform where you have a free flow exchange of ideas, and that does include opening the door to misinformation and figuring out how to manage that, ultimately, you can't run a business without generating revenue. And we are seeing substantial advertising losses at Twitter that he does not have a plan or addressing and, and dealing with and and mm. that I think when you're looking at the people who say they're concerned about the direction that Twitter is headed in specifically Twitter, that is really what they're talking about is this idea of just you know throwing chaos to the wind a sustainable business model and we you know the answer at least in the short term has been no. long term, who knows what's going to happen?
1: <laughs> Matthew Keyes is a journalist he covers media, he covers tech. Journalism, The net is a website I check frequently. I think you do a fantastic job with it, too. Uh, let me bring up this one question. Do you think Larry King would have had Kanye West on his show, and would we have approached that interview differently if Larry King was doing it and not Alex Jones?
2: I, I have to preface the answer by saying... It's always interesting how when we do our our Q and A's,
1: Larry King always comes up. So I know I have such a fascination.
2: You know, Larry King was a was a terrific broadcaster and I'll restate to your audience that's listening today what I said during our last interview, which is that he he asked he opened every interview with the same question, which is what happened? And then he let his his guests go from there. And I have to tell you that you know, I, I think the equivalency of Larry King to Alex Jones is interesting from a com- from a contrast point of view, but I don't think you could com- you could really compare them because they're they're two different broadcasters who have two different approaches and do two different things. I I can't speak for what Larry King would do, but I could guess, and my guess would be um, if he was presented with the opportunity to have Kanye West on his show, I, I don't know that he would have done it. Currently, and, and I think the reason why is because Larry King was a very reasonable broadcaster. And I think that, you know, if you look at what, what Kanye West is going through right now, you know, it gives me a little bit of Harper to even commentate on it because I think what we're seeing here is someone who is very smart and I'm speaking specifically to Kanye West. I think he's incredibly intelligent. He's very smart. He's gotten, you know, he's driven a massive audience to his artwork, which is incredibly hard to do. And that speaks to the genius of him as an artist. But I do think you're seeing somebody who is attracted to the spotlight and who thrives on attention, but doesn't know how to handle it. And probably has some interesting brain chemistry and wiring going on that is making him say and do things to distance himself from the pressure that sometimes comes with, with being a genius. I don't know how much of what he says he actually believes, but I do think you're seeing both a cry for attention and also a need to, to try to distance yourself from, from everyone. And, and the problem that I have with people bringing up Kanye West or, or bringing him on their program is that it's very exploitive. You know, it's very clear that we're seeing somebody who is who is going through a downward spiral, who is who is, you know, really doing a lot of self-harm and damage. And the people who are closest to him really need to pull him aside and say, you need to stop this. Right. Mm -hmm. Because you're this is this is going to do some real damage. And if the people who are closest to him don't do that and the media does continue to try to exploit him. The whole reason why chris cuomo had him on his show right nothing of substance came out of that nothing of substance really came out of the alex jones thing he's just doing himself more harm but my concern is that we've seen this happen before and it never ends well it never Mm -hmm. ends well it always ends with people going we should have seen this coming all yeah. the warning signs were there. All the warning signs are there now. Oh, no. Everybody should see where this is headed. And oh, and boy. that's the problem that I have with the media landscape, which is that it's it's very exploitive, and it harnesses itself around this for a cheap dollar. And that doesn't yeah. benefit anybody.
1: Oh, boy. There was that documentary on Netflix, Don't Mess With Cats. There's an expletive in there. But um, basically the idea is Internet sleuths tried to track down a guy that was abusing cats on the internet and the extreme lengths they went through to try to find this person and at the very end of the documentary you have one of the main narrators the one that really helped organize this look directly inside of the camera and said this is your fault too for watching this like it's entertainment and the moment you just had where you said that shame on us for looking at what could be mental illness on display. We're exploiting a Kanye West into use it as entertainment. Oh, boy, that says something about us, too, then the, the viewer, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, but this is the this is the business model that that new media has embraced and has kind of had to embrace to survive. There's so many, you know, the, when you look at what the media business model is, it's an attention grab. There's so much content and there's so many media platforms out there. And yet you as an individual, you can only be focused on one thing at one time. I talk about, you know, one of the things that commonly comes up when I'm discussing streaming services and the streaming wars, you brought up Netflix as an example. So this is a good segue into that is that, you know, there's a ton of streaming services out there and and consumers feel compelled to subscribe to all of them to get access to all of the content. But you can only watch one thing at a time, really. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and so what what you have streaming services do and media companies by and large is they create more content. They're they're throwing spaghetti at the wall, trying to make a hit. And they're spending an absurd amount of money doing it. It's starting to catch up with them now. If you look at what's going on with Disney, if you look at what's going on with uh, Warner Brothers Discovery, um, there's and even Netflix. They're starting to reel that in a little bit now. But it's a it's a real competition for your attention. And, um, you know, I, I can't remember exactly who, who it was I want to say it was um, I, I can't remember who it was, but somebody the, so there was a viral video that went uh, that went around not too long ago where, where basically there was a high level celebrity that you wouldn't think would necessarily be very articulate echoing that same sentiment. This is a hmm. this is a grab for your attention because that translates into dollars. And when you start to look at it through that lens as in the case of the Luca Magnata documentary that you mentioned, or as in the case with the Kanye West interview that was on Chris Cuomo's show or Alex Jones's show, that really starts to make a lot of sense. Hmm. You know, um,
1: yeah. I've seen the uh, headlines with Ben Affleck talking about the process of making a movie with Netflix, like an assembly line, and how that really hurts the, the artistic value of things. But looking at the streaming businesses and the way that they've handled things, there's so many different services in the the way they've cut. It's so fascinating to see all this play out you know, right in modern day, and I gotta also make sure you get an opportunity to plug the things you're doing because you're writing all over the place. You got great uh, pieces out there. If people wanted to find your work, by the way, where can they go?
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm also in the attention grabbing business too. So thank you for, <laughs> for for bringing that up. But I try not to waste people's time. So I, I'm in a couple of different places. Uh, I, as you mentioned, I self publish at thedesk.net, which is where you can find a lot of the uh, media analysis and, and coverage from, from you know, just the stuff that's going on. Uh, I also uh, contribute to Fierce Video, which is uh, a wonderful media platform that covers streaming media and, um, and emerging media, and then also for Radio Inc., which covers uh, the radio industry. So that's at right. RadioInc.com, I think, and also for Digital Content Next, which is um, a new client that I signed not too long ago, and I think I've written one or two things for them, but the genesis of, across all of those platforms is um, that there's a lot of really interesting things happening in the media space. Some of it is good, and some of it is not good, but but you know the media space is big, and that's going to happen, and for as critical as I might be about how the sausage is made, it's to me it's still delicious right like i would not <laughs> want to work in any other industry than what i'm working in now but i'm hoping that what's going on over the last you know couple of years and really what's happened in a concentrated amount of time recently is is going to be a wake up call for our industry that it's like the business model across the board has to change chaos is no longer a good business model and bringing people on and exploiting their exploiting their situations and exploiting who they are for ratings Mm-hmm. Is is not only not sustainable in the long term; it's going to do real damage.
0: Right, and, and we just
2: for the sake haven't... of time.
1: Uh, I'm sorry, we got we got run for for news here in a moment. But uh, Matthew Keys, you can look him up online. The website. The desk.net is what I enjoy reading. But you're so right. I wanted to find a unique way to bring up the Alex Jones, Kanye West thing, and I immediately thought of you, who covers media and journalism and tech and streaming. It's such a unique take. Matthew Keyes, thank you so much for joining us here in Buffalo.
2: Thanks, Ryan Baker.
1: And I'm Ryan Recker. Fill in. Don't go anywhere. News is coming up next. say that Matthew Keys. every time I interview or have him on for a conversation we always at least somehow I got to find a way to bring up Larry King as a talk show host I really missed out on the glory years because I wasn't paying attention to him much and then he was pretty much off the scene by then later he tried to revive his career and do the hey I'm going to shoot videos in my own home I'll have the people come meet me over here and I'll just do interviews Larry King a fascinating part of CNN's history and one cannot deny his influence And his uh, interview style was fantastic as well. I wish I could have interviewed him or talked to him sometime, but that never had the opportunity to. I did reach out to him a couple times, but I never got a response. Uh, What does he have to worry about a kid like me? All right, we had a couple of reboots announced this week and some trailers dropping. And part of the, the, the excitement that's happening today is there's a new Indiana Jones movie coming out. We know it's called Dial of Destiny, and a lot of people are excited to see this thing. I don't believe in magic
0: times in my life, for seen things things I've I can't explain. Seen things, and I've come to believe it's not so much what you believe, it's how hard you believe it.
1: All right, so they bring in the old theme song and everything, play a little different with the horns. Lots of excitement. Here he is jumping around, Indiana Jones, and I tell you, they had to have run some pretty powerful computers to de-age Harrison Ford because he looks pretty good in this. In the times I've seen him outside of this, he does not look that young. I mean, there must be a lot of computer shenanigans going on, and the response so far to this trailer for the new Indiana Jones movie is through the roof. People cannot wait to see it. They practically will go out and buy the tickets to it right now. And if you've seen the full trailer, I'm sure you may feel the same way, too. There's another trailer that came out this week. And it's one of those iconic shows that really, I think, were part of culture. Like, everyone really watched it. It sounds familiar. It's called That 70s Show. It was very popular in the 1990s. It depicted what life was like in the 70s for the teenagers living in this small Wisconsin town south of Milwaukee. And it was actually cool, you know? You know, a lot of stars came from that show. And it was just a fun little tiny show. And... You know, it makes me wonder if our producer Josh is listening right now. Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't think we've met in person, Josh. Can I ask how old are you? I am
2: 23, going to be 24 in April.
1: Uh, what does that mean? Was that translate what year were you born in?
2: I am the last of the 90s. I'm a 99 baby. Ugh.
1: 90s, so you're born 99? Yes. Yep. Oh, I my goodness. I can say that She's I'm a so
2: 90s young. kid. That's fair. I mean, I was born in the 90s. I watched, I grew up watching all 90s shows.
1: Experience if you weren't out things. of diapers in the 90s, it doesn't count. All right, you were in diapers the whole 90s.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, because I was born in 99. So, you watched that 70s show? I have, yes, and I actually quite enjoyed. It. It's pretty funny.
1: So for you, it was more like a documentary. You wanted to learn what life like <laughs> uh, in the 70s if you're a teenager. Luckily, I was able to live in the 90s as a teenager, which made it a lot more interesting when a show like this is proposed. So here's the idea of that 90s show. They fast forward 20 years. Donna and Eric Foreman are married and have a child. They have a teenage child with which they drop off at the grandparents' house. The same house that Eric grew up in. The same basement that him and his friends had enjoyed uh, memories and times together. And they, they put this together, and it looks really good so far.
2: Hey, Grandma. Hey, Grandpa. basement is all yours lights on shirts on and no dancing no dancing
0: you're like the guy from footloose (laughs) no dancing you guys
1: (laughs) all right so it sounds very much 90s and the idea is she's 15 years old her name is leia which is actually hilarious because eric was a big star wars fan so like princess leia and one summer they drop her off at the grandparents house red and kitty they're living in the same house in point place wisconsin and there's a lot of cameos i think pretty much everyone's going to make a cameo except for that one dude that was on trial that i think just wrapped up this week The Scientologist that was accused of all these sexual assaults, Danny Masterson or something. But he's apparently not going to be a part of it. And one of the things about that 70s show, I think people that grew up in the 70s had a keen interest in it. They're like, this is my era. You're bringing up a lot of things that I remember. And yes, that's accurate. No, that's not accurate. I'm going to finally have those type of criticisms for a show, which is going to document what it's like to be a teenager In the 1990s i am so looking forward to it and what i liked about the concept of why to bring it back they said this is the right era because it was the last time when you didn't look down at your phones the whole time there was real engagement with your friends you made real connections you had real experiences outside of the internet this was a fun time to be alive and really it may be the last era the last childhood we've seen where you didn't have a reliance on, you know, looking down at your phone all day, which I really think is a great concept and something that a lot of kids, you included, Josh, will uh, never be able to understand. Luckily, I was able to live in that time. Um, And this is the, I open this up mostly because I'm not a huge car guy, but I thought it was always cool that the cast in that 70s show would have the Vista Cruiser and they would like, you know, a lot of the scenes were them in the car, traveling, going, things like that. What would be the perfect 90s car for kids to cruise in? So let's say it's 90s, you're a teenager in Buffalo. What car would you be driving around? What's the quintessential 90s teenager car? I would like to hear your thoughts. And and if you can call or text 716-803-0930. 716-803-0930. Tell me, what is that perfect, that 90s car And for me, I almost feel like it has to be like a Ford Escort or an Aerostar. But minivans were so popular when I was in the 90s, everyone had a Ford Aerostar. My parents had one. Friends had one. Those things were just giant boxes that would clunk around. Sometimes you wondered if it was zip ties holding that thing together, but somehow it stayed together. They all smelt the same. They all felt the same. You know, the interior of some of these vehicles in the 90s, they would have this type of this vinyl that just would soak in your finger oils. So like the steering wheel was always dirty, (laughs) always dirty. It was just like, it was almost like a cutting board. You know, those, they tell you, if you get a cutting board, like a wood cutting board, you don't want to put raw meat on there because it will just soak into the wood and stay in there. The Aerostar, all the interior, if you touched anything, the grease of your fingers would just automatically be sucked out. But what would that perfect vehicle be for that era? 716-803-0930. I had so many great memories, honestly, of just cruising around in the 90s. I remember in the late 90s when I got a driver's license, my buddy got one. His parents got him a Jeep. And we would just cruise for the sake of cruising, just like my parents, I'm sure, did at that age, just like my grandparents did. Well, no, I guess my grandpa would have been fighting a war. I take that back. So I'm thinking <laughs> there's a lot of similarities, I guess, between the 70s and 90s in that sense. But today, I don't even know if kids go cruising, right? They, they don't do that for fun, do they? Here are some text messages of vehicles that they say would be good for that 90s show. Um, 92 four-door Impala SS looked like a Caprice Classic. Can I tell you I had a Caprice Classic at one point? It was a giant gray boat. The thing was probably got like 12 miles to the gallon because of how heavy this thing was. And since it was a classic, it didn't have a digital clock. It had an analog clock. An actual, you know, hour and minute hand on it with a little second hand that would go around. That was the in-dash clock. I remember this thing just you couldn't turn a corner without hitting something. It was so big. And the seats you would sink in on. There was no adjusting those seats so the woman that we bought it from was my old uh, grade school principal. And she had a giant Mickey Mouse decal on the back window. And even though I scraped Mickey Mouse off of it, it was so sunburnt onto the back window. You saw the shadow of Mickey Mouse. And that did not bode well when I'm trying to look cool driving around. I got a good old Mickey Mouse shadow on the back of my Caprice Classic. (laughs) Oh, someone said the Mustang. Get the Mustang out there. That's what you'd be cruising around in the 90s. Ton of Mustangs out there. Uh, Chevy Cavalier, okay, Escort Hatchback. I almost feel like the vehicle would have to have a hatchback or would be a minivan. One person said, get the Bronco, the small one. Is that the Bronco 2? Yeah, I think that was the Bronco 2. I always wanted a Bronco. They've remade the Bronco. Maybe one day I'll get one, but I would prefer to get an old one. My brother-in-law, when he got his first car, it was a hand-me-down from his grandpa, which was the Bronco Eddie Bauer edition. That car was sweet. Volkswagen. I I don't see the Volkswagen being the 90s thing. Here's another one. Uh, Pontiac Grand Am, Taurus Wagon, Ford EXP. Mm. I don't know if they'd be driving Toyotas either. Was there a lot of Toyotas in the 90s in Buffalo? Was that a thing in this era? Oh, the Saturn car company. It's so funny because when you talk about the Vista Cruiser, you almost want to think about defunct companies. It's like kind of unique to that era. So you'd almost want to think back. If it's a high school kid, 15, you're probably going back to the late 80s is the type of vehicle they'd put you in. So what's a defunct late 80s type of vehicle? You know, it's a little bit too late for the DeLorean and it's already been used up. You can't use a DeLorean after Back to the Future. Oh, one person said, get them a Gremlin. <laughs> 90s, uh, L-Rock or I-Rock, is it? Z? Um, yeah, I-Rock. 90, I-Rock, Z. A Dodge Omni. Don't remember that one either. Uh, Cavalier. Berettas were everywhere. Oh, I forgot about the Beretta. Oh, these are great examples. Notice no one is pointing out pickup trucks. 90s had a resurgence of the pickup truck. You had, remember Ford came out with all those commercials? Rock." Was that Ford? No, that was Chevy. What was Ford's? It was built for Tough. Yeah, they all had these different, like the Silverado had the big marketing campaigns, the Ford F-150s, the Rangers were popular back then too. But you can't fit all your friends in a Ford Ranger. Legally, you can't, unless you're throwing them in the back. And I'm guessing Netflix, who puts this on, is going to try to avoid jamming people illegally in the back of a truck because they don't want to be sued in case someone tries it and gets hurt. Uh, Okay, so what's the perfect 90s car since they're rebooting that 70s show to that 90s show? What is the perfect 90s teen vehicle that they should be driving around in? You tell me. 716-803-0930. Let's get some phone calls on this. Seriously, I'm getting unbelievable bulk amount of text messages. I mean, I am looking at this, and it seems like every 10 seconds there's another text message coming in right now. What is the perfect 90s car to cruise around in as a teenager? When I grew up, like I said, I had a Ford Escort station wagon. It was Smurf blue, and it was ugly, but I thought I was so cool with this thing. What's the perfect vehicle they should be driving around in that rebooted that 70s show, now called that 90s show? She's 15 years old, 16. I'm sure her and her... Friends will be cruising around, 716-803-0930. And let's say it's 1995 in Buffalo. What is the perfect teenage car? One person, I'm looking at these. The Gremlins are pretty popular. The Honda Civic, that's almost too common. Like when you say Honda Civic, I think, okay, I get it. Everyone had a Civic. Like there was such a popular thing. The Ford Windstar minivan, that was for those that had more money than the Aerostar Star. <laughs> Uh well said on the Bronco. Oh, the S10. No, that's too small. Dodge caravan, maybe. I'm almost afraid that like the caravans might price it out. Like they're not buying a teenager a caravan. That's too expensive. Pontiac Sunbird. That's pretty good. Uh when I grew up in Williamsville, my mother drove the Green Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser. Perfect. From uh Texas Carl. Yeah, so you have that memory of that 70 show, the Vista Cruiser. Geo Tracker. Okay, if you're buying yourself a geotracker, are you just assuming that there's going to be a plot point where that thing breaks down all the time? I remember those things having major issues that never really got uh, resolved. I had a buddy, and he had a—oh, man, what was it? It was a uh, Chevy something. Acclaim? Uh, 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 Yeah, I think it was a—not Chevy. Chrysler Acclaim. White car, boxy looking, and there's so many issues with it. It was one of those weird moments where he comes from a rich family, but when it came time to buy a car for the littlest kid, they always found the biggest junker they could possibly get. Family had money, didn't care. Let's get the youngest one a junker. The Chrysler Acclaim came in. This thing was broken every which way. I'm surprised it even would start. He never had heat. He never had air. It was always leaking something. My parents and everyone else would not allow him to park that car in the driveway because it would always leak. And the, the, just the fact that the thing would I mean, actually crank over is a miracle, that he would even get to school safely, let alone anything else. I wonder whatever happened to that car. I'm guessing it blew up diehard style. More text messages. Uh, Chrysler, Daytona, Volkswagen Beetle. In the 90s, is that when they brought the Beetle back? Man, I hated those cars, too. I thought they were just so useless, not practical. The Beetle was a throwback to the hippy-dippy days, right? And then they bring it back in the 90s, and they said, here, we're going to have a little spot on the dashboard where you can put a flower if you want to. And I also remember those cars being garbage, never would able to start, those 90s versions of it. The Maverick Grabber, I don't know that one. Pontiac Ferrero? don't know that um chevy lumina oh man my kids drove my old caravan for years okay so the hand-me-down caravan seems to be the favorite so far what's the perfect vehicle keep texting these in if you want to call and you can too for that 90 show that's about to reboot on netflix 716-803-0930 i'm ryan Recker filling in on wpen